Welcome to Coach's Corner with your host, Ryan Watson nope, and Jonathan Horton. I'm just letting you know I'm going to hate it. going to hate it? Yeah. All right, here we go now. Get behind that line. We're going to do it right. Do it right. Do it light. Let's go. It's time for another edition of Coach's Corner, normally with your hosts, Ryan Watson and Jonathan Bourne. Jonathan is off this week, but we'll be back next week ready to roll. This week, I am joined by Bill Ott, resident film nerd for Broadway Sports. Check him out on Twitter at super underscore horn. You can find more content from Bill and others from Broadway Sports at broadwaysportsmedia.com. If you have not already, head on over and sign up for your free seven-day trial. And then, after that, it's just $9.99 a month for all of our great content you do not want to miss. Bill and I sat down with Coach Chris Selfo, longtime coach, whose history includes coaching current Titans right guard Nate Davis at Charlotte. Stops at Marshall, Tulane, Georgia, and the Falcons. Tighten your chin straps up. This is a good one. Welcome to this edition of Coach's Corner. Today we have the privilege of talking to Chris Selfo, former coach, head coach Tulane, Georgia, lots of stops between Marshall. We're going to get into all that as we go through this podcast, this, this line of questioning. Um, coach, how are you doing today? Doing wonderful. Thanks for having me. No problem. We always like to talk to coaches, get into the depths of the knowledge, preferences, things you saw. I always enjoy going through coaches' stories as well about things because I'll tell you, it's a fun world, and, and you usually see a little more of the behind the curtains than gets released to the public. So it's always interesting to get the perspective there. So I I'm, I'm really want to thank you for coming on today and spending some time with us. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Perfect. So as we said, uh, you did coach current starting right guard for the Tennessee Titans, Nate Davis at Charlotte in 2018. And we got, there's one of those situations where that year everybody was wondering what the Titans were going to do. Were they going to shuffle their current offensive line, move Ben Jones to guard, move other people to center, move uh, Jack Conklin into right guard, move Dennis Kelly out to right tackle, which looks like Dennis Kelly potentially has the shot at the right tackle this year. But Nate being drafted in the third round, it was interesting to see him come out of Charlotte and do all the research and see him at Senior Bowl and John Robinson spend the time with him. Uh, but the one thing that came out was that, that was kind of the glaring thing at first was Nate has this unique stance that's unusually low. Did that jump out to you at all while you were coaching him? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Nate, Nate really, with just one year of working with him, I, I thought he was looking at his junior tape I thought it was not advantageous for me to get him to change that stance. Uh, he had a lot of success with it. He was comfortable. Um, he didn't go through spring practice that year. So there was not much time to get him to, to really adjust and, and do that. And I knew I was going to play him between guard and tackle. Right. And, and it was kind of overwhelming for, for me to say, hey, you know, let's get his stance worked out when he can do the job with the stance he had. Yeah, and, that, and that's kind of the important thing there about um, getting able to get it done because I think that in my college playing days, I played out of a two-point stance just because that was what our offense called for. And we were the quick side of the line, so we pulled a ton. So if we could get to all of our spots, our my uh, Vic Wallace, my offensive line coach, head coach uh, at Lambeth said, he didn't really care what we lined up, just get the job done. If He said, if y'all start to not get the job done, we'll address it. But – that's what that was kind of my next question is, and you kind of answered there. Do you think that's kind of a problem? But do you think, I guess, relating to the NFL, have you seen or kept up with him and seen if he's changed his stance at all, or or, or do you still see some of the same habits you saw at Charlotte? He's he's uh, he's gotten his rear end a little higher. Uh, you know, the games I was able to watch, he played in. He uh, 
I've seen him. I've seen an adjustment, but as far as his footwork and all is still the same. So, you know, that's been a, um, I think, really helped him, and it's going to continue to help him on that level. And that's a credit to their coaches. But I, I think Nate is um, the guy who should get all the credit for Nate as the general manager because for him to. You know, they did their homework on him. Um, I talked to the offensive line coach. I, uh, there was a, a lot of, you know, in, being in the National Football League, um, I think they they really did their homework by reaching out to me uh, about everything. They had uh, someone at practice quite a bit. And the things that, that I told them about Nate was what they could see on tape. It wasn't a – you know, made up scenarios, so to speak. And uh, I, I didn't think he was going to last that long because mm. I don't see guys that have power and athleticism in the offensive line play as much today as it maybe was at one time. Sure. You either have athleticism or you have power. Well, Nate Davis has both. And that's Nate's going to play a long time in the National Football League. Yeah, and so I, that kind of leads me to the next question. You, you've coached a lot. I mean, we went through your your roster of guys you've coached uh, that have jumped from college to NFL. Um, you know, even, and I'm sure you've been around other guys that have been, you know, great athletically. But what's the most difficult part in your mind of that jump from college to the pro level? Well, I just think it's the terminology and the different. Every snap is a different blocking assignment. You may be running the same play, but, I mean, defenses are so much more multiple in the National Football League than they are in college. And part of that is because colleges are spread, and there's only so much a defense can do. Right. When you play from sideline to sideline, um, you know, it's tough for, for defenses to really hone in on what they really want to do and be able to get there on time, where in the NFL, I mean – for the most part, it's become it's always been a um, a seven to eight man box, and you know things are changing every snap. You know, I used to always say it's not where they line up; it's where they wind up, and that happens on every play. Right, and so kind of you know part of what you said there. I mean, so that in terms of scheme, you know, the, the Titans run. I mean, they're almost. I don't know what the percentage would be, but zone dominant. Um, and, and so I would imagine, you know, with that background and that, with athleticism, athleticism and power, he's a natural fit. And we've seen that he kind of grew into that scheme. Um, but do you view him as a, as, as a natural fit in that outside zone scheme that the Titans run? You know, I, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't pigeonhole Nate into anything. You know, I watched <laughs> Ben Jones uh, because he was at Georgia. Sure, sure. And I watched him, you know, um, you know, I could pigeonhole maybe Ben into that. Ben is uh, uh, one of the best zone blocking, you know, centers that I've seen. Um, but Nate, I, I can't pigeonhole Nate into that because his pull, his power, his change of direction, his balance. Um, I, I think Nate can do anything. Uh, and I'm not being, you know, critical of, of anyone else, but I, I know Nate's power and athleticism. I don't think he can 
he can go wrong on any type of, uh, of offensive run game. It's interesting you bring that up because one of the questions I wanted to get to is because I, I played guard um, in a power pro I offense, and I also coached it in a spread and just the little differences. But but language is language to the offensive line. You just have to relate it. It's, it's all going to be similar paths. And I just wanted to see if you had any typical growing pains or talking through, like, because a guard is asked, it's kind of the Swiss Army knife of the offensive line. The center's the leader, right? Um, and, and just to kind of touch on what you did, Ben Jones, I've, I've said this when we're watching film with guys, I'll talk about people will say, well, Ben Jones didn't really get movement there. I was like, yeah, but do you see how he had a head up guy and he literally got to the play side and just worked that dude and pressed him off him. I said, take into consideration, he just snapped the ball and he had to deal with the dude in his face. I, that's a win right there for a center baby. And he does that. He does that pretty dang good. So I have to agree with you there on Ben Jones. I enjoy watching him run the zone. But as far as for Nate, because uh, the guards typically have to do so much more as far as they, they, they have to pull typically in an offense. I've seen center pulls, depending on your guy. But you, you have to pull. They have to float. They have to work the double teams and communicate. And what I mean by that is sometimes they're, they have to know, based on alignment, are they working the double team stack with their center or their tackle based on the play. So they kind of have to be that Swiss Army knife. And is there any kind of pains or when you're t- t- teaching that typical kid over, say, like a tackle or a center? No, you just have to rip it. Uh, they have to feel it. Um, the guys, uh, you know, why does a golfer swing uh, a sand wedge a thousand times a day? You know, you, you, you got to feel that. It's got to become muscle memory, and, and, uh, and you got to be comfortable with it where you're not thinking about it. It just comes natural, and the, the, the short steps, the, the, um, the base, the balance, you know, all those things are, are – something that we're not made to do. We've got to be trained to do that. And, uh, you know, that's just the, the great ones do it in the off season. Uh, they take 30 minutes. Uh, they, you know, they work on it in camp. Uh, uh, they work, you know, they're constantly working on their craft, meaning the little things. And those are the things that make the difference. And, you know, you go back to Ben Jones, somebody saying he doesn't get movement. I, I'll say this about anybody. On a single block in the National Football League or in college, good teams playing against each other, if you can find someone that can move a down lineman by himself, <laughs> I would like to see film on it. I would love to see it because yeah. a tie is a win. Oh, heck yeah. Was it- and I hear all the time from people saying, oh, he didn't get movement. Well, guess what? You're not going to get movement. If they are, they're going to get him. He's going to get cut. Oh, for sure. He's not going to be. Yeah. You know. Just get, get in the way sometimes with some of these schemes. And that was what I would preach to guys is like, throw your body at them. Just, just do a puppet show or something just to occupy their time. But I think, I think Bill had another question for you about uh, offensive line uh, communication. Yeah. And it, it gets back to the reps thing and, and something that really jumped out this season with the Titans. Um, you know, they, they added Roger Saffold to the left side of the line. You know, he's uh, uh, obviously been a great player for a long time he's uh, he's run the zone system in LA for years now at a high level but even when he came here um, there were between him and Taylor Lewan who also had been running the zone system they had had issues with assignments um, you know and and uh, so I, 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 I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that you know even between veterans um, getting to that that level and I would think, and I'm, I'm curious if it's specific to zone, but getting to the, that level of comfort with the guy next to you of, of who who's reaching to the second level with the linebackers, um, you know, and that kind of communication, how, how long, how does that, um, 
how, how long does that take? And, you know, is that a work in progress? Well, I, I see it a little bit different than, than a lot of line coaches over the years. I think the, as an offensive lineman, you're an independent contractor. Hmm. That, that's an excuse when you say, well, we have no continuity up front. We, this guy had to move here. This guy had to move there. Everybody has a job on every play. I, it doesn't matter who's in there at guard. Your job is to do this with this technique. At tackle, your job is to do this. The the thing that, you know, I've always taught on zone is, uh, and we were pretty good at it at Georgia, was never leave the down guy until you get to the second level. And whoever feels that, has got to feel it, whether it's Roger Sappho and Taylor Lewan or Nate Davis and Ben Jones or uh, Nate Davis and Taylor Lewan. I mean, the, they're independent contractors. And it, I think it's a cop-out when you say, well, we have no continuity. That's an excuse. Uh, you got to plug a guy in. And, and that guy's got a job and a responsibility to do. So whether his he's been there – for a week or he's been there for five years, you know, yeah, there's comfort in the communication part of it, but the assignment and technique, they're independent contractors. And when you say comfort in the communication part, you mean comfort and communicating pre-snap about, you know, who's going where or even within the huddle about assignment-based football? Exactly. Being able to know that, hey, if if Taylor says uh, – an out call, you know it's out. Right. I mean, uh, Sappho, trust him. Mm. You know, there's trust there because they've done it before. Yep. Whereas if 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 Nate and, and and Tyler working together, and maybe Nate's not sure that hey Tyler, when he says out, it really means out. Uh, that I can agree that there's some con- continuity there. But as far as doing your job, absolutely not. They're independent contractors. I like that that term, independent contractors. I'm probably going to steal that later on, and I'll, and I'll and I'll try to credit you if I can remember, because I love that. Because when you think you break it down with injuries or with guys rolling in, you got to have that next man man up mentality, and you can't have the doubt or the 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 thought that they're not going to do the same job. So I like I like that, but I do also like that you do have to have that know your role, be accountable for your role, don't make excuses for it, but also have the wherewithal to have your communication pre snap. And during the play too, like, cause I worked a lot of zone where I would essentially, if, if I worked long enough with my, the, just the guard or tackle position, you have physical cues as well during the play. And I, and I pointed this out when we we're breaking down films, you watch guys, sometimes you'll see a lineman shove another lineman off. Once they say, okay, I'm here, I'm taking over. I see it a lot in scoops when you're having someone help with like a, an inside or an outside technique or inside technique give that hand before they climb. Same thing in double team where you kind of physically put your hand on your guy's back and like, all right, I'm here, go ahead and go kind of thing. So that, that kind of stuff happened all the time too, kind of in play. And I didn't know if that was something you taught or do you think that's something that happens naturally between offensive linemen? No, I, I don't think the guy that has the hand on his back can even feel that during the play. <laughs> I think it's just, I mean, uh, think about it. He, 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 he's got snot coming out of his nose and, He's not gonna feel no hand on his back. That just happened. Uh, I guess it was more for for my confidence then. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, but if their aiming points are right, it's gonna happen naturally. And because if I'm going for the outside breast and you're going for the inside breast, 
that's going to happen. But if I miss my landmark, then now we're out of sync. I didn't do my job on this play. Yep. And maybe the tackle is going to get blamed for it, but the guard didn't hit his landmark. That's a, that, that's a great point. You know, that's a great point you bring up because, like, you watch film and you look at what, what, where the play broke down. On a play that, that only gained one yard that probably should have gained eight to ten, you can always find that one block who broke down late. And people want to uh, blame the one position, like the tackle is going to get blamed for this, but he may have done his job or gotten the guy right, but the running back had to cut out into him because the backside guard didn't, didn't cut off his scoop to, to allow that play to open up like it should have. That's correct. And, and that, that happens on the zone scheme quite a bit and just like you know I don't know how much power Tennessee runs um I thought they ran some but it's it's if somebody didn't do their job then the back has to bounce it right well the power's designed to hit in the a gap to a gap so it's not the tackle's fault that you know that back had to bounce it out and get tackled Somebody inside didn't do their job. And that and that goes back uh, to what I was saying earlier from the standpoint of, you know, again, everybody has a landmark. Everybody has a job. And that's why I've, I've come to say that offensive linemen are independent contractors. I mean, you plug them in. You know, and back when I was a younger line coach, I always said, Boy, if we lose this guard right here, I'm not sure, you know, the, the guard and the tackle is not going to be able to work together. we got to get extra work. As I've grown in this profession and studied this profession, no. If I'm teaching the right landmark and I'm teaching the right thing and I have the right player, whether he's a backup or not, then he should be doing the same thing as the guy that just got hurt. Maybe not quite as well. That's why he's a second teamer, but he should be doing the same thing. So, Coach, I mean, your background, you mentioned at Georgia, you, you, you ran a lot of zone. The, the schemes that you've run, I, I mean, I know, and we'll get into this later, that you coached under Mike Malarkey, and he was obviously a coach here, um, and I would call him more uh, uh, kind of power, counter, gap heavy. Um, did, did you run kind of the gamut of, of different schemes? So, I guess kind of a two-part question there, did – have you run kind of across the board and then, and then if you have, do you have a preference? Well, I think the, the, the biggest thing is when I was at Marshall from 90 to 95, we were inside and outside zone team. When we went to Georgia, we carried that with us. Of course we had, you know, Robert Edwards and, you know, we, the Heinz Ward lined up some there. Uh, Alandis Gary, we were a zone team, inside, outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, you know, and the thing is, if you're a zone team, you have to major in zone blocking, zone running. It, you have to major in that. You can't have the diversity in an offense. When you look at San Francisco, uh, you look at old Denver, the back is as important as the lineman as far as making people right. But you have to major in it. You have to do it over and over and over and over. And that's why I think you see 
teams that run the zone and are good at it, that's about all they do. And they have play action off of it, and they have their dropbacks. But your run game is basically zone, zone, zone. Uh, right. The the power game, I think it, people have gotten away from it in a tight, you know, formations because it's it's hard to run against a seven man box mm-hmm. when you got six blockers, or eight man box when you have seven blockers, because it's hard to move guys. It, 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 you know, to play in a phone booth is tough, and y'all got one of the best backs in the league. I mean, he he can play in a phone booth. He can play out wide. But, you know, those are few and far between. A guy that big, that strong, that powerful running, you know, it's just – it's tough because you always they, – they always have a plus one on defense. Yeah, you almost have to have per- be perfect. Plus, you have to you have to hope the defense messes up or gets out of alignment on their own in that situation. When you, when you have too many people to block, it's, it's kind of a difficult thing. Whereas zone, you can, you can out motion them. You can ha- have them set up, key them wrong – and then still have the running back pick between four different gaps to cut back through or wind back through, as, as Bill likes to say, and and still make it a successful play. So it's, it's definitely I was I was comfortable when I was coaching because uh, I started in the zone and power. We were multiple set, multiple formation when I was a coach, when I was a player and a coach. And then I went my first full time job was as a spread coach and learning that. And it was a fun, but I preferred uh, kind of the power just it was my my nature. One of my frustrations was it was my first high school uh, round. I did I tried to teach the head coach zone because I said that we've got a bunch of small athletic kids. Let's try to teach the zone and see if we can ang- out angle people. And he gave it a day and gave up on it. And I said, no, you're going to have to. We've got a few weeks. You got to you got to give this time for the kids to learn it. They're not going to get it right now. It's 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 complicated, but once they get it, it's easy. So I couldn't get it's it's hard to talk people into that and it just I love hearing another zone guy talk about that kind of stuff because it is it is probably down my favorite scheme because it's just once you've got it and once you learn that zone language and, and buy into it it's a it's a wonderful thing to have. It, it really is and and again the, the back is uh is uh, a big big part of it. Uh, you know from the standpoint they see it enough they're going to anticipate the cut and they're going to find the hole, so to speak. Whereas, you know, if you don't do it enough, then, then you're always hesitant. You're always chopping your feet as a running back, and then you're blaming the, the offensive line or the tight end. You know, at, in Atlanta, we had Michael Turner, and we ran power. Uh, and, and, you know, Michael T was more of a power back from the standpoint of that's kind of what he came out of. He was at San Diego, you know, and downhill was his game. And we had success with it. But, you know, uh, uh, taking a Landis Gary, a Terrell Davis, uh, uh, those guys are, are zone. You know, you'd be reading about Robert Edwards right now, you know, being one of the best backs to ever play if he wouldn't have sustained that injury because those guys just, that's what they ran every day. And they made the linemen look good. Yeah, and so back to that question about you know you got a you got a really rep zone. Would you say, and you kind of touch on this, but is it more about the running back and kind of um, putting that that practice to memory about you know seeing you know, where the defender is in the gap and and whether to you know bang, you know bang it or, or bend it or bounce it. 
Um, is that specific more to the running back needing those reps or, or how much of that is the offensive line too? And you, I know you mentioned that chemistry isn't super important, but how much of that matters as well? Well, I think, I think it matters more to the back because the back can make it right. Um, right. You know, the offensive line, if you're, if you're teaching a bucket step or you teaching a pull and run and, or rip and run, uh, the gaps to hit, for the back are changing every step and they're the ones that's going to make the lineman right uh you're not asking a lineman to come off the ball and and double team and you're asking the lineman to basically create gaps on the move and the back has to see it and so i i I give the back more credit when we had when we had big games it was the back making the right cut because we just had to cover people up, first level and second level, because they're going sideways. And in the back, got to run off a butt and make the lineman right. Those are some great points and, and, and some really good insight into the offensive line and, and philosophies there. Um, like I said, though, I kind of want to get into um, – your your history and kind of walk through some places because I've got some interesting you've got a rich history of where you've been and the guys that you've been around so I kind of want to go uh, a little stop by stop here and just ask a few questions at each place uh, starting off with uh, Marshall which was I believe your first uh, full-time I know you were GA in Oklahoma but this was your first full-time coaching position I believe is that correct correct yes okay so your O-line coach from 1995 with OC duties uh, tacked on from 93 to 95. And y'all were the D1 AA national championships at ni- in 1992 when you were there. And I think you had one other national championship as a GA. Is that correct? Yeah, 1987. 87. That's awesome. A lot of coaches just want that one ring, and you've got you've got a couple of them. So that, that, that's awesome right there. Um, but as far as the positional coach, you went from O-line to OC in – not to say that that was early, but a whole lot of guys don't make that kind of a leap within just a couple of years. What was that transition like from position coach to OC, and were there any pains that come that came along with it? Well, it, there were because uh, the first time you do anything, it's, it's painful. You know, it's a learning experience, and um, you know that's the first time I'd call plays on on, on Saturdays, and it's uh, you know you, you guys and us that are sitting on the sideline, we we have all night to digest the plays that we should call before the next day that we can criticize. When you're the offensive coordinator or the defensive coordinator, you have 30 seconds Mm. to make a call. And, you know, that was a a huge adjustment for me. And, and coach, so I think right when you got there, Chad Pennington was in his, his, or, or maybe not right when you got there, but you had Chad Pennington during his freshman year. Is that right? Yes. What was that like coaching him as a, as a freshman? I didn't mean to interrupt you there. So if you got some recruiting stories there too, I'm, I'm interested to hear, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious what it was like coaching him as a true freshman. Well, uh, you know, he, he played, his father was a coach in Knoxville and he came up to our camp. I think his grandparents lived in, in uh, Huntington or right across the river there. And he was the only, you know, we, he was out there one day at camp and, and uh, Coach Donovan says, hey, Chris, come over here and look at this kid. And I'm like, man, this guy's six two, you know, he's skinny. He's, he's, but <laughs> he was letting the ball go before the receiver was breaking on his route. And I'm like, 
that's unheard of, you know, for a kid this age, the anticipation. And so anyway, coach offered him and we got him and he came in as a freshman, obviously a lot more mature than, than the other guys, but we also had some guys around him that were upperclassmen that, that really helped him in his development and his leadership. But Chad, Chad was a guy that, uh, you know, I, I think to the day he finished playing professional football, his anticipation was, was what made him what he was because his arm strength wasn't, you know, spectacular, but his knowledge and his anticipation of the offense was excellent. And would you say that anticipation, that's, uh, that, that comes out of just hours of hours and hours of film study, or, or is that more of an innate uh, kind of attribute? I, I, I don't know. I don't know if science can prove me right or wrong, but I would say it's a <laughs> bit of both. Okay. Right. And even at that young age, did you know that, that he had the NFL in his future? No, absolutely not. No, well, he, could, he could barely reach the, the ocean from the beach. oh man those are good stories when they surprise you like that but unsurprisingly in marshall i know that this was a little after your time but but randy moss uh came there through all his the notre day and then florida state and uh then ended up at marshall uh just i know he was there right after you but did you have any hand in the recruiting uh randy moss to marshall or do you have any stories from that well when he was a sophomore um they sent me and coach lambert who's the head coach at UNC Charlotte last year. Now he's at Marshall. Uh, they sent us to watch him. And they had a linebacker on their team that signed with Notre Dame the same year, you know, the, the same. But uh, Randy was a sophomore in high school. And we went over there, watched the game to see someone else. And it was like a man amongst boys. Whew. And we went back and said, hey, we could do – you could do all you want on this one right here, but we ain't getting him. <laughs> You know, I mean, and enough, two years later, we didn't get him. Well, I imagine that would have been pretty fun to be able to be still be the OC there. I know y'all moved on to Georgia, and that's where we'll go next. But I bet that uh, would have been fun to be able to, to design plays and, and coach him in that offense at Marshall. Oh, my. It would have been easy. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have been up there late at night, I promise you. Oh, you man. Know? That's a great story. I love that. So, but like we said, I think you and Coach Donnan moved on to Georgia after that. You became the spent three years as the head uh, assistant head coach and offensive line coach there. Um, just off the top of my head, I'm curious if if because uh, moving from D one AA, there is a difference between going from that and then going to the SEC. Do you, do you have any favorite moments in big games coaching in the SEC that come to mind? Uh, I think you know one of the favorites would have to have been at Auburn in uh, I think ninety six. We went into four overtimes. Oh yeah, um, that was a that was a huge game for us. And uh, you know, we played as that roster developed. I, you know, I was gone towards the end of it, but uh, that roster, when you looked at it in two thousand or or nineteen ninety nine, uh, the players on on that roster was uh, unbelievable and. You know, they we had the national championship in our league on our side. We never won it, but uh, 96, I think Florida won it, 98 or 99, Tennessee won it. Um, so, you know, it was – we never won the league. 
in the three years I was there, or even the five that the rest of the guys were there, uh, the league was just stacked at that time. But if you, you know, look at the players that have come out of there, um, you talk about Richard Seymour, Marcus Stroud, uh, uh, Landis Gary, Jermaine Wiggins, John Stinchcomb, Matt Stinchcomb, Jonas Jennings, Kim Wansley, uh, Jermaine Phillips, uh, um, I mean, Champ Bailey, uh, Robert Edwards. I mean, that was a phenomenal roster. I mean, uh, at one point, I think uh, 11 of 11 guys on defense were drafted. So, you know, it was that, it, it, and I was young. I was a younger coach then, but it really made me appreciate and it helped me identify really good players. Uh, you know, it, it was really good for my career. Yeah. And so, coach, at your time, your time, Time there, you know, looking at that roster, it, you know, two guys stand out. Um, Kirby Smart and and Mike Bobo were on the roster. It looks like while you were there, is that is that strange seeing those guys? You know, kind of front and center coaching now, and um, you keep up with with them at all? I do, and no, it's not strange. Um, uh, Mike was a coach when he was, uh, you know, a senior in in uh, at Georgia. He was really. You can tell if he chose that profession, he was going to be very successful. And, and uh, you know, Kirby was a average player, quote, unquote, but he be, he was a really good player from the standpoint of he got everything right in the back end. Um, you know, he was Coach Williams' boy. You know, Kirby made the calls, got everybody set, played with intensity, set the pace every day on defense. And Mike did the same thing on offense. Uh, you know, I remember playing Wisconsin in the bowl game. I think he was like 22 or 25 when they had Ron Dane. And, um, you know, it was a phenomenal. Mike was a very average athlete and all of that. And I'm not saying that negatively, but you can tell he was he was sharp and, and was going to be a good leader. Right. And both his fathers were coaches. There's always that joke I would make when I was coaching as those that can't coach or those that can't do it coach kind of a thing. So it's, it's kind of interesting to hear you say that about Mike, but it's, it's fun to watch those guys now and, and how successful they're being and, and with their coaches for sure. But speaking of success, you were able to go from there and you go to Tulane next, and then you were able to take over uh, in 1998 as the head coach during a 12 and 0 season, I believe. Is that correct? Yes. For the bolt for the Liberty yes, bowl. They were- Yep, they were 11-0, and 0, and uh, I think the smartest thing that I did was when I went in there, I didn't disrupt it. Um, I sat back and, and uh, you know, watched and, you know, didn't make any major decisions for those guys. They had won 11 games without me. Uh, you know, who was I going to come in there and say what to do? So, you know, I put my ego and pride aside, or really my ego, and uh, – just got to know the players, did recruiting and, you know, evaluated staff members and, and uh, then went up to the Memphis and won that game. And then, then of course, the next year is when, when it all started happening for us. Yeah. And so I'm curious about that transition. Um, you know, 
obviously there's a big responsibility moving up to a head coaching role. Uh, um, but I, I've got to think that's even, um, even greater in college because of all the recruiting and everything involved. So how different is that moving from being a positional coach to a head coach uh, at a big university? I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> um, you know, hey, you sit in that chair, you know, and I commend Mike Vrabel for that. I, I knew Mike in Houston because I recruited his son, you know, the one that went to Boston College and got to meet Mike a couple times. And, um, you know, in college, it, it's just – it's so overwhelming. And, you know, I, I was the youngest head coach in America. I was 34 years old. Oh, wow. And and it was uh, – you know, it was just so overwhelming because – every minute of every day you were, you know, dealing with things that you've never dealt with as a coordinator or a position coach. And uh, I can see why head coaches get recycled. You know, I mean, I, I can understand that on, on every level because, I mean, no matter how good you think you are, until you sit in that chair, you know, you, you, you're going to learn. And, uh, and and that was that was probably the biggest thing that I had to go through. Sure, and and obviously I, I've got to think the, the most difficult time during your period there was was coaching through Katrina. What was what was that like? That's obviously not something anybody prepares for. Well, uh, you know, up until this day, I, I still say that was the um, the hardest thing I've ever had to go through in my life. Besides, was my parents at nineteen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when there's a, something like that happens, it, it's uh, you're responsible for a hundred and something people, their families, and you don't know for weeks if they're, you know, alive or not. And you're moving all over the country. And, you know, that's why I'm, you know, all this stuff right now that's going on, um, it's on a national level. But when Katrina hit, you know, that was, that was, uh, that was very personable personal to us and you know for for what our players had to go through our coaches and their families and um i I wouldn't wish it on anybody yeah that had to be rough playing the 11 games on the road like that and and, and keeping the kids up to try to to get out there so i mean that's that's that season just you have to look at and be like if we just made it through as a team got to think that that's success in itself that we didn't break down we're able to carry to the next season because that that had to be rough to just never have a home game have the personal stuff that's going on so i i that's definitely something that i would it would have stuck with me for a while too well and and you know the next year um we still didn't have a campus and and uh we didn't have workout rooms we didn't have a locker room you know it, it went on for you know two years really it affected those players. And I think we'd had more players drafted. Um, you know, I mean, when you're in pregame warmups and you're having to go to the other team's equipment manager to bark cleats or screw ins or, you, you know, it's going to be difficult. And, yeah. uh, and it was, we went to the first three Katrina year and then it just all went downhill after that because our players, you know, they weren't eating there. Hmm. I mean, it just all, you know, compiled and and uh really affected us because we had a pretty good team i thought it was going to be one of our better teams better than the hawaii bowl team 
Yeah. And uh, I mean, we had Matt Forte at running back. We had, uh, I think he played for Tennessee at one time, Roydell Williams. Yep. Um, yep. You know, we we uh, uh, we had some good players. Anthony Cannon, who ended up playing at Detroit. A uh, couple kids played in Canada, and uh, but you know that year and the next year uh, were that year was the most difficult. But the next year was was tough from the standpoint our kids were working at Planet, working out at Planet Fitness in the summer and fall, and and uh, it wasn't Planet Fitness, whatever the one of yeah, those twenty four hour gym or something. Yeah, something like that, and you know they had to bring their own clothes with them and. Whew. It's rough. It was, uh, you know, I, I still talk to a lot of those guys uh, that they, you know, and they're, I think they're a lot stronger for it, but I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't have wished that on anybody. Yeah, it wasn't, obviously that was a low point, but it wasn't all low. You mentioned the Hawaii Bowl before we move on to the Falcons. Uh, you mentioned that it was, it's, I, only Tulane head coach to win two bowl games. So that's got to feel good there. And, and winning that inaugural uh, Hawaii Bowl, just, just a note before we move on. I absolutely love the onside kick to start the game. I remember that watching that game live and thinking, man, that, that's that's big coming in as, as double-digit uh, underdogs and coming out and doing the onside kick, setting that tone early out there in Hawaii. That that was pretty fun to watch. But so Well, let me, let me add this to that because that, that, that's one of my great memories in coaching. Uh, so we go out there, we lose the toss, they take the ball. You know, June Jones, they had what, Timmy Chang, they had a heck of a team. They had a player on, that played Tennessee for a long time. Uh, I forget his name, but anyway, so we're on a headset, we lose the toss, and they elect to receive, and I said, uh, I, we had Seth Mahler was our kicker. I said, uh, Seth, come here. We're going to onside it. So in the huddle, I want you to just call onside left. We've been practicing it. So I get on the headset, and I said, guys, we're going to onside this. And I promise you, you can hear a pin drop on the headset. <laughs> Nobody would even breathe, you know, to give Timmy Shank to start field or to start the game off. You know, it's like, hey, we got to send a message to our players because they had just had a big flyover. And – you know, I looked around, half our players were hiding under the bench. I mean, they like scared. <laughs> so so we just uh we onside got it, didn't score, but it kinda set the tone for the game. Yeah, and, and that was that's that's why it was one of my favorite moments watching that and, and I can I've been a part of those conversations where you can hear that pin drop when decisions are made because you're like, you don't want to disagree because if it works it's gonna be great and that that's that's a great story. But then yeah. After Tulane, you're able to move on to the Atlanta Falcons in 2008. And coming into that season, the, the Falcons themselves were coming off a rough patch, you know, with the Michael Vick stuff, not to get into too much of that, uh, Bobby Petrino's abrupt uh, resignation. Uh, it's, it's just kind of a rough time. The 2008 Falcons shocked a little bit going 11-5 and, and, and making the NFC Championship game. That was Matt Ryan's rookie year. Uh, but everything points to rebuild. Uh, th- did that feel good as a coach to sit there and say, everybody was wrong, you know, thank you all for, for, for doubting us because we really put it together this year. What was that experience like coming in after all that? Well, I, I tell you, the negativity surrounding the Falcons when we got there was, uh, you know, Unreal, really, and and it kind of continued um, for a little bit. 
But, uh, you know, we acquired Matt through the draft. We got Michael Turner. Um, we got a tight end, Ben Hartsock. You know, we got some key components. And uh, I think that was the year we got John Abraham. I'm not sure. But with a couple of big free agents we got. And uh, and to have that season right there was, was really good for the Falcons and, and the city because, all of the things you said earlier about Michael Vick and Bobby Petrino and, you know, it was, uh, it was really positive. And I think that really gave us momentum uh, the time we were there. And one of the, the big things that generated momentum that you remember is that Matt Ryan really blossomed into a viable NFL quarterback, you know, Matty Ice coming out of Boston college. There's still that, there's still that, that stigma with a, with a college quarterback, right? You don't know if they're going to be good until you actually strap on the NFL and actually go through the reps. And what were some of the factors or philosophies that led to his passing success early? Was there a lot of, of credit from the offensive line standpoint and, you know, kind of a pride of keeping him clean or, or what led him to be that successful that early in his career? Well, I, we, I think we kept it very easy for him. Bill Musgrave was his coach, and Bill is is as good a quarterback coach uh, a coordinator there is. And uh, you know, Bill really developed him and and made things really simple for him. Of course, we had Roddy White. We had you know we had some good players outside too. Brian Finneran. Um, there were some guys that were reliable, dependable. Were going to be where they're supposed to be when they're supposed to be there. And uh, and we had a good running game. You know, we had uh, Ovi Mahaley at fullback and, and Michael Turner at running back. You know, our line was, you know, we just drafted Sam Baker at left tackle, but the other guys were just free agents, you know, Tyson Claybo And, uh, you know, so we just, I think the big, the key was that we kept it simple for Matt until, he can grow into that role more. Coach, and we talked about, you know, a little bit earlier, just touched on Mike Malarkey, but um, you know, I'm curious, did, did did you have a relationship with, with him before and how did you yourself into your role as tight end coach? And, and also what was it like working under him as the, uh, while he was the OC? Well, he, he, he uh, I didn't, I never had met Mike. Uh, I know he played with uh, my college quarterback, Bubby Brister up in Pittsburgh. Um, but that's, that's really all I'd ever, you know, heard of Mike. And then, uh, you know, working with him was, was good. It was, uh, you know, Mike's really technical business. Um, you know, he's just all about ball and, um, you know, and, and, uh, I think he, you know, he did some things that, uh, helped us that first year. Like I said, uh, Bill Musgrave's kind of the one that really, you know, got us, in the right positions and, and felt what our team needed because Bill was on the staff the year before, but um, yeah, Mike was fine. Um, And and up to that point, you know, again, we went over this earlier, but had you been kind of mostly zone oriented, even at Tulane? And then obviously Mike is, I wouldn't say he's the polar opposite of that. There's, you know, there's obviously some middle ground there, but I would say he's more gap oriented. So was that, was that, had you coached in that type of system before? Not, not as much, you know, we've always had some of the gap schemes in, uh, but I, we've always majored in zones. Uh, we ran a lot of one back power at two lane and uh, one back gap schemes, but not, not the way that uh, Mike had done it. You know, the old NFL two back 
through power and counter. And uh, so, you know, that was, uh, it, it broadened my, my, my uh, base and knowledge. Right. Um, you know, one thing that really caught my eye, and this, this is all, it's always interesting to me to see guys that are, uh, that are later in their career that play at a really high level. And, and maybe in NFL history, you can't think of maybe Tom Brady would surpass him, but Tony Gonzalez, what he did at the end of his career, you know, since, since 2000, there's only been four times a tight end over 35 has had over 800 yards receiving and Tony Gonzalez owns three of those. So I'm curious what your experience was like coaching with a guy like that. I mean, it, it's, you're obviously he's, there's no doubt he's athletic, but you're not relying on pure athleticism like you would with a, uh, you know, 25 year old. So what, what was that experience like working with him? Well, I, I, you know, it's really hard to describe. Uh, Tony's a pro's pro. We're very close to this day. He was only supposed to play two years. And uh, then he signed the third year and ended up playing five. And I told him, you know, after year two, I said, if you give me five years, I'll get you to the Hall of Fame. And uh, uh, that's been my sticking point with him. But uh, all kidding aside, the thing that stands out the most to me about Tony Gonzalez is he only missed three games in a 17-year career playing tight end. That is called durability. That is called mental toughness. Um, you know, just it, that's phenomenal for yep. me. You know, all the catches, all that. He was a good blocking tight end too. But all those things, I mean, to play 17, you multiply that times 14, 16 games, and you only miss three. Uh, that's remarkable. Uh, we, we, we had a, a um, interview here recently with uh, local uh, strength and conditioning coach Jason Spray, and he said something real interesting that I – the best ability is availability. And to your point there about Tony Gonzalez, you, if you, you're just on the field and you're playing that much you and you contribute that, that's that's such a level of success that you can't talk about, just being able to stay at least on the field and then producing at that high level. So that's something that stuck out to me when we were interviewing Jason Spray and then, of course, hearing this here about Tony Gonzalez. So just point that out um, real quick. But uh, that's all good stuff. I've really, like we said earlier, rich coaching history, a lot of good stops along the way. We've enjoyed talking to you. But just to finish up here, we had a couple of general questions now. To be on, to, in full disclosure, the, the conversation was going so well, we kind of moved some of our general questions up. So what I've got left in the general uh, just is I want to talk a little bit about your, your son, Joe, who's now currently coaching at Southeastern Louisiana uh, with your brother, Frank. And I just wanted to say, what is that like uh, seeing your son enter the coaching ranks? Well, I, I'm really I, – I'm really – I would be – uh, very biased, but I, I think Joe will be a lot better coach than I was. Uh, you know, he grew up in the Falcons locker room. He right. grew up at Tulane, uh, you know, working in the training room and the, uh, he handed out snacks when he was six years old. Um, he has been exposed to so much more and, and I can see it when I watch him interact with players, with parents. And, um, you know, I'm really proud of him. Like, you know, he, he played at South Alabama for four years, felt like his, you know, his last year he wanted to step up the competition and, you know, went to NC State and, and uh, 
and was nothing promised. Dave Dorn didn't promise him anything. And, uh, um, you know, he went up there, won a starting job over Garrett Bradbury, who turned out to be a first-rounder, and started 13 games for them, you know, at, at six foot, 290 pounds. You know, and, and I'm just – I'm proud of the fact that he, you know, he has what it takes to be a really good – teacher and coach in our profession and uh he's not in it for the money yeah he's not uh you know he's not he's doing it because it's a passion and and uh i think that's what separates the really good coaches from the ones that that aren't quite so good 100 percent agree with you there just just one other has, has there been a lot of change in your discussions with him when he was a player to now he's a coach has his, his line of questioning changes or your advice changed to him uh, the line of questions have changed for sure. Um, uh, the advice never has. I mean, you, the, the bottom line is you're going to treat everyone with dignity and respect. doesn't matter how good a player they are, how good a person they are, whatever, you know, so he's lived by that. Uh, I don't think that'll ever change. And, uh, but yeah, some of the questions are, are, uh, are, are a lot different. That what step, what foot do I step with now? What hand do I use? It's, uh, you know, how do I do this or how can I get this done? Right. That's great. And, and as before we wrap up for sure, we talked a little bit offline about how it's kind of a small world and the coaching rank sometimes, cause, uh, we had some things that might've crossed path. My actual, uh, one of my first games, I think it was my second game ever as a college football coach was at Southeastern Louisiana. We went down there and played them. I think their first inaugural year back, um, in 2003 and we had a pretty good team that we that year but it was our first game and the level of competition just wasn't the same I think we ended up losing 22 to 10 but that's just I see southeastern Louisiana and I'm like yeah I I went against the Lions once (laughs) so yeah you know what's ironic about that uh uh, I played him in 1985 when I was a senior at, at northeast Louisiana and that was the last year they had football till 2003 See, it's just some, sometimes these things just connect. It's just kind of it's kind of crazy, but they had a good field. I'm yeah. glad that 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 uh, program's sticking around because they they had some passionate fans automatically that first year. I know they were excited, so um, that's that's cool. So, well, well, well coach, I, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, but before we ended, I wanted to give you a chance if you have any any charities you're working with, anything you wanted to plug, any if you have any social medias, want to give you a, a chance to uh, tell our listeners about something. I'm not big on the social media. I do want to wish the Titans a, a tremendous amount of luck. And and um, I know Coach Brabel and some of the guys on the staff are, are doing a heck of a job. The players um, really bought into what they're doing, and it showed. And and uh, um, hopefully I can get up to Nashville this fall. And uh, I'm volunteering at a little high school here in, in Fairhope. And, and um, maybe when we get a weekend off or something, I'll be able to venture up there and see Nate and the Titans win. And reach out. It would be great to, to sit down and talk with you in person if that happens. Will do. Well, thank you, Coach, for your time today, and, and we'll uh, let you get going about your day, but we really appreciate it. Thanks, Coach. Absolutely. Thank you all. Y'all have a great day. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. That is going to do it for us this time on the Coach's Corner, part of the Broadway Sports Network. Remember to be sure and check out all the other podcast articles and video breakdowns that Broadway Sports has to offer at broadwaysportsmedia.com and on Twitter at BroadwayTN. 
Also follow your hosts at JB on Broad for Jonathan, at Ryan on Broadway for me. And thanks to, again to our special guest, Bill Ott. You can follow him at super underscore horn. And follow the show at Coaches on Broad. Be sure to subscribe and rate five stars before logging out of the, your app of choice. So until next time, we out. See ya.